Hello and welcome to the Hypochondriac's Almanac Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great show for you guys tonight. But before we get started, we need to talk about a few little disclaimers. We are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind on this show. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or cure you of any ailments. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Do not guess or take what we say on the show as medical advice. That being said, let's jump into tonight's episode. The first one I thought was very interesting, and it came out in Men's Health, and it's called Redheads Process Pain Differently from Everyone Else. Here is why. And this is by Carolyn Washington Harmon. Redheads, this one's for you. Kunal Sood MD, better known as at Dr. Sood on TikTok, has an interesting message for you regarding anesthesia. In a TikTok video featuring a woman who dyed her hair red, Dr. Soup warns that she let her doctor know their hair is artificially red, not naturally, risking being improperly administered anesthesia. This is because patients with naturally red hair require an average of 20% more anesthesia, says Dr. Soud. This has been shown through research, and he is absolutely right. While redheads are rare, encompassing only 2% of the world's population, their rare genes come with a host of strengths and weaknesses when it comes to pain and anesthetics. In a 2006 study published in Anesthesiology, women with red hair required much more anesthesia than women with dark hair, linked to a distinct genetic phenotype that redheads have. Redheads also typically need more topical anesthetics such as lidocaine or novocaine, according to a 2009 study in the Journal of the American Dental Association. Research also shows that redheads are more responsive to the pain-killing effects of opioids, meaning they require lower doses for this. Previously reported by Men's Health, redheads can credit this gene known as the MC1R gene for their striking hair color while dictating the type of proteins that colors their skin and eyes as well. This can make redheads typically paler and more sensitive to light than other hair colors. But why do redheads process pain differently? The research is spotty, according to the NIH. A 2021 mouse study showed that mice carrying the MC1R gene found in people with red hair had higher pain tolerance, but the reason isn't well understood. Until we figure out how redheads have superpowers, don't forget to warn your doctor or dentist if you're a natural redhead. Wow, (laughs) that's some interesting stuff there. Here's another interesting one. A teen ate leftover rice and noodles. Hours later, doctors amputated his legs and fingers. This one came out a few weeks ago and is written by Gabriella Miranda in USA Today. Hours after eating leftovers from a restaurant, a 19-year-old was admitted to the hospital with multiple organ failure and later had both his legs and all his fingers amputated. The Massachusetts College student had eaten rice, chicken, and lo mein from a restaurant. Soon after, he felt abdominal pain and his skin turned a shade of purple, according to a report by the New England Journal of Medicine. The teenager was admitted to a hospital for shock, multiple organ failure, and rash, and his condition quickly declined. He experienced abnormal breathing, high blood pressure, and vomiting. The student had been overall healthy with regular drinking and smoking habits, the report said. But after further tests, he was diagnosed with menococcal purpura fuminin disease, which caused his stiff neck, nausea, respiratory collapse, shock, and organ failure. This particular condition is a rare complication that comes with septic shock, which the student experienced, according to this report. 
condition is caused by bacteria and brings symptoms such as sudden fever and vomiting. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warn it can lead to death in as little as a few hours. Wow, that's scary. Over the course of his hospital stay, his condition worsened and he developed necrosis, the death of tissue and cells. At that point, doctors had to amputate his legs and fingers, according to the report. He also needed a pacemaker for 13 days to treat his cardiac dysfunction. Experts have warned against the dangers of improperly storing leftover rice because items like rice and pasta contain a bacterium called Bacillus cerealis. The bacteria produces a toxin when heated and left out too long, according to the CDC. In 2008, a teenager died in his sleep after eating leftover pasta that wasn't refrigerated overnight, a case that was reported in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology. The medical team learned that although the Massachusetts student had received a first dose of his meningococcal vaccine, he never received the recommended booster. His roommate also ate the leftover food and vomited, but didn't have life-threatening reactions. So, if you are considering eating leftover rice or noodles, be very, very cautious that they have been refrigerated and heated properly after eating, or just don't even bother with it. Throw it away. No leftovers for those sorts of things. You don't want them sitting out and getting that bacteria and having that risk. Next article. Mom raises awareness after son is diagnosed with uncombable hair syndrome. And this is a new one to me. Ji Jun Ju wrote this article and it says a Georgia mom is on a mission to spread joy and raise awareness after her one-year-old son was diagnosed with uncombable hair syndrome, a hair disorder that she'd never heard of until last year. The boy's mother, Caitlin Samples, told Good Morning American that a stranger messaged her last summer on Instagram after seeing a photo of her youngest son, Lachlan Samples, and asked if he had been diagnosed with uncombable hair syndrome. At first you see syndrome and you're like, oh my gosh, like is something wrong with my baby? Is he in pain or something, Samples recalled? She added, I just went into a tailspin and did a Google deep dive and called his pediatrician and the pediatrician even was like, hang on, let's look into this. They hadn't ever heard of it. So they sent us to a specialist, a pediatric dermatologist at Emory in Atlanta and that is where we were able to get a diagnosis. What exactly is uncombable hair syndrome? Uncombable hair syndrome is a rare hair disorder and a genetic condition that usually affects children between the ages of three months to three years, although there have been reports of cases in kids up to the age of 12. According to the NIH, only about 100 cases have been reported in medical studies, but experts say there could be more unreported cases. People might just be like, oh, my child has unruly hair or hair that's difficult to tame, but they might not have sought a medical professional, like a pediatrician or dermatologist, to formally diagnose the condition. According to Dr. Chang, who works as a pediatric dermatologist at UCLA Health, children with uncombable hair syndrome, also called spun glass hair, can have hair that grows in all directions and the hair can be straw colored or have a dull texture or be hard to manage. A specialist can diagnose uncombable hair syndrome through a genetic test and an examination of hair clippings through an electron microscope, a process that uses a special type of microscope. Wow. So when you look under the microscope, you can see that instead of having hairs that are cylinder shape, the shaft of the hair is actually more of a triangular shape, Dr. Chang explained. 
Within the triangle, there are these little grooves that go up and down the long axis of the hair shaft, so that's why it makes it really uncombable. To diagnose the condition, at least 50% of the hair should have this abnormality, but not all of the hairs have to be abnormal, Dr. Chang added. For the genetic test, doctors would look for three specific genes that have been associated with the syndrome. The three genes that were found are what we call an autosomal recessive condition, meaning that both the mom and the dad have one of these genes and it passes on to the child who's affected, Dr. Chang said. It can also be inherited in what we call an autosomal dominant condition, where only one of the parents has it and they pass it to their child. So how do you live with this uncombable hair syndrome? Despite the syndrome's name, Sample said she could still comb Lachlan's hair for now, but she doesn't need to do it so often, and overall it's relatively low maintenance. It can get matted easily and it's very fragile, it can get tangled, and I do have to be careful, the mom says. That would be an example of a time I actually would wash it because I would very rarely wash his hair. It doesn't really get greasy. The mother of two said other people have been very curious about Lachlan's hair both in public and online. We get a lot of comments about him looking like a dandelion, and that's actually a very accurate description of his appearance and how it feels. His hair is extremely soft like a little baby chick. People will ask to touch it, which is fine with us as long as people ask. Samples has been sharing Lachlan's story and photos on Instagram since his diagnosis. In a post from October, she wrote that she wanted to do it in part to spread some joy on the internet. Our biggest message is to celebrate what makes you stand out and what makes you different and hopefully bring awareness to this uncombable hair syndrome. And hopefully we can get some more information, Sample said. If you think your kid might have it, go inquire and ask questions to be your child's advocate. There are no formal treatments for uncombable hair syndrome and the hair abnormalities tend to resolve themselves as time goes on. Interestingly enough, this condition does get better with age. After puberty or into adulthood, typically the hair condition gets better, Dr. Chang noted. It doesn't stay with them for their entire life. Wow, that's a new one. Next article. This is a condition that I myself personally have, but I saw this article and it kind of caught my eye. It says, beware of disinformation surrounding thyroid health. And Lisa Larson wrote this article. As one of the main glands that control cellular function, the thyroid can take credit for assisting with a lot of the inner workings of the human body. However, it is also an easy and often erroneous place to cast blame when something feels a little off. There is so much disinformation about thyroid disease, it's hard to know where to begin, says Dr. Monica Moreno, an endocrinologist from Intermountain Medical Group who sees patients at Intermountain St. George Endocrine and Diabetes Clinic. While the three main thyroid-related issues, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, and thyroid nodules are very real and may need medical attention, Dr. Marino says it's important for patients to consider there may be underlying causes contributing to things like fatigue and weight fluctuations. Our lives are stressful, a person's diet may not be good, they're busy, they're working long hours, and all of this can lead to feelings of fatigue, weight gain, mood changes, hair loss, brittle nails, and dry skin, said Dr. Marino. Because those can be symptoms of hypothyroidism, people often want to blame it on that rather than addressing the stress and lifestyle issues that could be causing this. In order to determine if such issues are thyroid related, the symptoms have to be correlated with a lab test, generally available through a patient's primary care physician. If the tests are normal, that's not always what the patient wants to hear, Dr. Moreno said. 
people want an explanation for their fatigue, and that goes beyond stress or lifestyle. They often want something that can be treated with a pill. If the diagnosis is related to hypothyroidism, medication is often used to treat the problem. Some patients can have transient hypothyroidism that comes and goes, and others will need medication for life. Hypothyroidism, which is a deficiency in the thyroid's production of the thyroid hormone, is more common than hyperthyroidism, which is an overproduction of the thyroid hormone. According to Dr. Moreno, a primary care provider can easily manage most hypothyroid cases. If the issue is hyperthyroidism, often an endocrinologist will need to get involved. Hyperthyroidism is not a chronic condition like hypo, Dr. Moreno says. Generally, medication or a surgery can help resolve the hyperthyroid problem. The most common cause of hypothyroidism is autoimmune, Dr. Moreno continued. The distinction to remember is that Hashimoto's is the disease that can cause hypothyroidism, but hypothyroidism does not cause Hashimoto's. It only goes one way. As for thyroid nodules, Dr. Moreno says up to 50% of the population can have nodules without even knowing it, and 90 to 95% of these are non-cancerous. We don't have screening recommendations for nodules because even the small percentage that could be cancerous it is a very slow-growing cancer, Dr. Moreno said. Thyroid nodules are often found incidentally when the patient is being examined for something else, but as a general rule, women are more impacted by thyroid issues than men, Dr. Marino says. There are two peaks for women when they see a problem during the reproductive ages of 20 and 30 and during menopausal age 40s and 50s. However, this doctor sees patients between 16 and 85 for hypothyroidism. Although prevention is always a good idea when it comes to health, there's not much to be done to prevent thyroid problems beyond a basic healthy diet. Sometimes things like thyroid nodules just happen and we don't know why, but it doesn't seem to be lifestyle related, say the experts. Still, a healthy diet and lifestyle will help with everything, whether the root cause is thyroid or not. So if you suspect that you do have a thyroid issue, do not guess, do not just assume that that is what you have. Go see your doctor, get some blood work done, and you can confirm whether that is indeed the case. That is what I myself did. I contacted my doctor. I do have a family history of it. Um, my mother and sisters have it as well. So I definitely got that confirmed via blood test before I got some treatment for that. But next article is my doctor gaslighted me into believing I was fine. In reality, I had a rare autoimmune disorder. Mallory Sand Nichols was 29 and pregnant with her second son when she started having double vision. Her doctor blamed pregnancy-related hormone changes, saying she'd see clearer postpartum. With her delivery, a second cesarean section came a new symptom, weakness in her legs that was so profound she had to manually lift them up to get into a car, and the double vision remained. Two months later, there was no improvement on either front. Her doctor said the weakness was probably related to a hernia, she recalls, and suggested core exercises to help her regain the strength to lift her legs. As for her sight, well, nursing produces hormones similar to pregnancy, he said, so things would finally return to normal after breastfeeding. But deep down, San Nicholas, a CrossFit coach in San Diego, knew herself well enough to know that something was wrong. Yet another year passed and she stopped nursing and, as suspected, nothing resolved. Each time she approached her provider with her worries and questions, he urged her to wait. 
Her next move was making an appointment with a PCP who shrugged her off, saying the mom of two just wouldn't bounce back as easily after multiple C-sections. San Nicholas stressed to her doctors that her deteriorating vision was impacting her ability to drive her car safely, and she was offered an ophthalmologist's referral. After a vision exam, San Nicholas remembers the eye specialist saying, your vision is 20-20, what do you want me to do for you? And chalked it up to migraines. She was sent on her way with instructions to work on reducing the stress and anxiety in her life. Symptoms piled up until the weakness struck her arms and she couldn't put her hair into a ponytail or hold a coffee. She also couldn't swallow or force the right side of her face into a smile. It was almost as though I'd had a stroke. But I still waited a couple of months to go to the doctor because I was so concerned I would be blown off, like I had been for the past two years, she says. We looked to doctors to know everything and mine tried to slap an explanation of anxiety onto whatever I explained. After a deep dive on Google, she finally had an answer. Myasthenia gravis, a rare autoimmune disorder in which antibodies attack the communication channels between nerves and muscle, leading to profound weakness that can also affect the eye muscles. Eventually, via an internet search, she found a neurologist who validated her symptoms, ran tests, and finally diagnosed her with the disease. Her experience is not uncommon, sadly. Defining the experience, San Nicholas, now 36, was a victim of something called medical gaslighting. The term refers to when a healthcare professional dismisses, invalidates, or belittles a patient's concerns or symptoms, says Jennifer Sebring, who is an MSC candidate and researcher at the University of Manitoba in Canada, who has chronic illnesses and experienced the emotional labor required to prep for appointments knowing the symptoms might be brushed off. Sebring's recent research article published last year in Sociology of Health and Illness examines the long history of medical gaslighting and lays out how invalidating patient concerns perpetuates health inequities. Knowing why it happens. The medical field hasn't overall been centered on the patient experience, especially when it comes to women, people of color, and trans and intersex individuals. Health systems have been developed with the gender straight, able-bodied, white male in mind, says Sebring. Deviate from that and medicine has a tough time knowing what to do with you when you don't show up with understandable symptoms that fit a mold. Up until recently, a lot of research was based on white men and we use that as a gold standard for how to treat disease, says cardiologist Jennifer Mieres, MD, Senior Vice President of Norwell Health Centers for Equity of Care and Patient Advocate. Tracking the toll. When you know your health team isn't all ears, you start doubting yourself and your doctor. That distrust often leads people to withhold information out of fear of judgment, which can result in catastrophic consequences, Dr. Mieres says, like misdiagnosis. The positive and very recent development, gaslighting as a term is having a viral moment. So while it's still happening all the time, we're at least becoming more attuned to the concept overall. Having better convos. To be clear, it's not up to you to transform the medical system, but approaching care like a partnership can help you grasp your individual power, says Dr. Mieres, who offers a game plan for how patients can best interact with doctors in her book, Heart Smart for Women. The most helpful thing you can do is prepare for your visit, including knowing what gaslighting is and what it looks like when you're at an appointment, so you can spot those signs ahead of time. Bring copious notes too. How exactly have you felt over the past six months? How has your lifestyle changed? 
direct the conversation by being as specific as possible and ask your provider to document everything, including why they won't run a test at Sebring. If you ever need to employ a last ditch tactic, say this, I know my body, I'd love to brainstorm with you for a few options for next steps to solve this, or you can refer me to a specialist to investigate further. You don't need to play the role of a good patient, Dr. Mieres says, and San Nicholas, who finally has started enjoying hiking again now that her condition is in remission, reiterates that we know our bodies more than anyone. In other words, it's worth it to find a doctor who will listen. The only one who suffers by waiting is you, says San Nicholas. Here, here. So here are five clues that you are not being heard. Number one, your complaints are dismissed as stress, anxiety, or depression, and your doctor is uninterested in investigating further. Two, you feel ignored or not taken seriously, or that they're pushing their degree or expertise to prove you wrong or less than. Three, your intuition tells you something is off, even when your doctor tells you all is fine. Four, you feel talked down to or minimized instead of engaging in a two-way conversation. And five, your provider isn't willing to run more tests for you and won't adequately explain why you don't need them. So if you are feeling any of these things, do not give up hope, do not think that you are inferior, and do not just brush it off. This could be very serious. See a different provider if you are uncomfortable with how your current provider is dealing with your health care. This article is super, super important, especially since we tend to listen to everything our doctors say and take their word as law, and that's not necessarily the case. So it's very interesting information to have. Next article, lifestyle changes can reduce your chances of suffering a heart attack or stroke. And this is also very, very important information currently because these conditions have risen dramatically in the last couple of decades. But Krutika Simon is the author of this one. These are the facts. Every 40 seconds, an American has a heart attack. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Every four minutes, someone dies of a stroke. These are scary statistics, but they are real, and we need to talk about them. The words heart attack and stroke come up in conversation. You see how to prevent them on your labels of your favorite cereal, and there are plenty of commercials that warn you about the risks of stroke or heart attack. We're passionate about heart health, and we're trying to share these four important ways that you can prevent heart disease or stroke. First, let's talk about your diet. It's well known that when you make healthy food choices and maintain your weight, you are less likely to have heart disease. Swap from processed foods to more fruit and veggies. Eat that lean protein, fish and nuts. Eat less processed foods. Cook more at home and use healthy oils like olive oil. Second, move on to other lifestyle factors that you can change today to make your heart stronger. Stop smoking if you're a smoker and now make a plan to set a quit date and test the extent of your willpower because you can do it. If you smoke 20 cigarettes a day, you are six times more likely to have a stroke compared to a non-smoker. Another important factor in the prevention of heart disease is limiting alcohol. Alcohol contributes to an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. Third, let's talk about hypertension or high blood pressure. Now, there are a lot of risk factors, so we'll get the ones out of the way that cannot be controlled, genetics and family history. Genes affect most aspects of our lives, and this includes how the cells in the heart communicate and the strength of the blood vessels. But we can control lifestyle factors, like diet, smoking, and alcohol use. So it's ever so important to make lifestyle changes if you have a family history of heart disease. 
A high sodium diet increases blood pressure, so avoid deli meat, frozen pizza, and canned products as much as you can. Thus, your genes may control many aspects of your life, but you can control the choices you make. Let's talk about numbers. As it's been mentioned in many, many articles before this, with respect to diabetes, you know your numbers. If you don't know where you stand with your numbers, you will never know there's a problem. High cholesterol is a direct contributor to heart attacks and strokes, and there are two components of cholesterol, LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, and HDL, which is the good cholesterol. LDL is increased by saturated fats, which are found in red meat and full-fat dairy products. You should try to stay below 100 for your LDL, and if your HDL actually protects your heart, you should aim to increase this number to 60 or above, and exercise is known to increase your HDL. There is so much more to heart attacks and strokes than what is covered above, but the wealth of information that is available online and in writing is staggering and can sometimes be overwhelming. However, we want to bring awareness to the topic. If you're drinking your coffee and reading the paper and asking yourself, what is one thing I can change or incorporate into my life that could prevent a heart attack or a stroke? Do it. Change your diet. Go see your doctor. Get those numbers checked out. Be ready to prevent that in your own life. And then one final article of the day, what is the active grandparent hypothesis and what does it say about health and longevity? This article is by Ambry Burfoot. By one narrow view of Darwinian theory, grandparents are virtually useless. After all, they don't produce many babies and that's all evolution cares about, passing down helpful genes to the next generation. But don't jump off a cliff, grandma and grandpa. A broader view recognizes your key role in an intergenerational survival. It also suggests, according to a new paper from a team of Harvard researchers, that you should be getting more exercise to align your modern body with your evolutionary history. This view comes from a perspective paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The paper is titled, The Active Grandparent Hypothesis, Physical Activity and the Evolution of Extended Human Health Spans and Lifespans posits that modern day Westerners engage in much less physical activity than earlier humans and that this mismatch leads to many chronic diseases that were once rare in humans. One of the authors of the active grandparent hypothesis is evolutionary biologist Daniel Lieberman known for his role in the born to run thesis which suggests that endurance running had a role in human evolution. Another is Iman Lee a professor of epidemiology recognized worldwide for her multi-decade research with large groups and recent papers that measure physical activity. AGH is based largely on observations of hunter-gatherer tribes like the Hadza of northern Tanzania and on activity patterns of animals closely related to humans like chimpanzees. Chimps don't move much, but the Hadza do. Therefore, something happened in our evolutionary past that changed us from sitters to movers, and the change was powerful enough to be passed along as an important survival trait. Literally thousands of scientific papers have closely linked exercise in humans to health and long life. Moreover, according to the AGH, the older one gets, the more physical activity matters. The comparative statistics between human groups across the millennia are striking. The Hadza spent four to six hours a day in moderate to vigorous activity, as their ancestors likely did. Currently, U.S. exercise guidelines recommend 2.5 hours a week of activity. Hadza adults have an overweight obesity prevalence of about 2%. In the U.S., this figure has soared to above 70%. 
the Hadza also remain active in old age when Westerners typically head for the car and the couch. Hadza grandmothers are particularly impressive. They actually forage more than their daughters who are usually busy caring for several youngsters. The food supplied by grandmothers helps to sustain the extended family and without it the family might wither and die. The paper does a great job summarizing that old age may have evolved in humans along with highly active lifestyles, says David Reichman, a University of Southern California professor of human and evolutionary biology, which is not associated with new publications. It shows the harmful effects of inactivity seem to be greater and older compared to younger adults. To appreciate AGH, you must understand one widely held but inaccurate assumption about the reason that early humans did not live as long as modern humans. While they died on average at a younger age than we do today, these deaths were not caused by unhealthy adult lifestyles. They were a result of high infant mortality rates and childhood infections, which have largely been eliminated by modern medicine. Today, most elderly Hadza rarely suffer from chronic conditions, while 88% of Americans aged 65 and older have at least one chronic condition, including 64% with two or more chronic conditions. Lieberman, Lee, and their co-authors offer two main explanations for the good health of ancient grandparents. The first is simple and widely understood. The second is novel, little discussed outside of research circles, and biologically complex. The first reason is that regular exercise burns lots of calories, helping to keep us lean and fit. It diverts food energy away from body fat, especially the pernicious visceral fat that releases inflammatory cytokines into the bloodstream. Excess fat and chronic inflammation are linked to major illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, and cancer. Exercise counters the development of fat and inflammation, as most of us recognize and as scientists constantly affirm. In my almost three decades investigating physical activity and health, it is astounding to see how regular activity helps maintain good health and function, both physically and mentally, he says. At the same time, it is also undeniable that exercise produces short-term damage that manifests as muscle soreness and tiredness. Consider how you feel the day after a hard session in the gym or your first day of a serious lawn work each spring. Ouch. But a day or two later, the muscle soreness disappears and you are stronger and healthier for your efforts. This cause and effect sequence has long been recognized in the vernacular. Fitness fanatics are fond of saying, use it or lose it. And more than a century ago, Frederick Nishi wrote, what does not kill me makes me stronger. These expressions now appear to hold at least a kernel of truth. However, they have lacked biological explanation until now. In this paper, Lieberman and his colleagues call the damage turns into growth miracle the activity paradox and theorize that the health-enhancing response is controlled by many-pronged repair and maintenance processes. When you exercise, your cardiac output is three to four times higher than when it is at rest. The body takes note and turns on repair and maintenance mechanisms in various systems, including the muscles, the cartilage, the microbiome, and the internal antioxidant system. The repair and maintenance doesn't just return the body to its prior homeostasis, but actually leads to improved healthfulness. 
thus the second reason that ancient grandparents lived long lives. You won't necessarily develop biceps like Popeye or Olympic potential like Usain Bolt if you regularly force your body to go into the repair and maintenance response. But the combined effect on health and longevity of so many biological reactions is real and measurable, Lieberman says. We have yet to see any small bit of physical activity that doesn't promote your repair and maintenance. Lack of exercise has opposite effects that lead to disease and breakdown. Lieberman likens the pace of these effects to the slow drip, drip, drip of formations on a cave's ceiling. Each tiny little change is so small that the body barely perceives it. By the time they are apparent, he says, it's too late to repair them. In his book, Exercise, released last spring, Lieberman describes a day in the life of the Hadza, which hasn't changed much in millennia. It's tough. Soon after dawn, the males head out to hunt and perhaps chase honeybees from their hives. The women search for tubers and berries. Finding a good place to dig sometimes involves an hour-long trek, he writes. Digging is arduous work because many tubers hide several feet under rocks that must be pried out. The ancient farmers who came to predominate after most of the tribes like the Hadza disappeared didn't have it any easier. Studies have shown that they likely burned as many or more calories per day than hunter-gatherers. You had to be moving and or hoeing and digging for most of the day, and if you weren't, your clan might not survive. Human life changed little until the Industrial Revolution that began less than 300 years ago. The computer age of the past 50 years produced unprecedented social shocks. Suddenly, you could better provide for your family by staring at a screen all day than through farming or factory labor. But the trade-off too often is infirmity in old age. And most grandparents don't want to live to 100 if it means dealing with debilitating illness for 30 years. They want to be healthy and vigorous to enjoy the grandkids. Lieberman and Lee's hypothesis shows that this is possible, but we have to move. It's great if someone can achieve 10,000 steps a day, Lee said, but we now clearly know that there are health benefits at lower levels, even 5,000 steps. We don't live under the conditions faced by the Hadza, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't move like the Hadza. We should. Lieberman goes even further, saying exercise is medicine, but we can't prescribe a simple dose for everyone, he says. The most important message is that something is better than nothing. Just move more. And that is also a critical thing for all of us to take note from articles like this one. So, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot me an email. I'm at hypothalmapodcast at gmail.com. I will drop that email address into the show notes for the show, as well as all the articles I have used for the show today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you didn't enjoy the show, just delete it and ignore it. <laughs> no big deal. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild medical conditions. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. <laughs>